Hello, I'm Dan McMillan, Head of PR at Vitality, and I'll be chairing this quarter's Vitality at Work podcast. A government review last year showed that poor mental health costs employers between £33 billion and £42 billion a year, with an annual cost to the UK economy of between £74 billion and £99 billion. It's clear that mental well-being in the workplace is a huge issue, so what can employers do to support and encourage better mental health among their staff? On the panel to discuss this today are Andy McGill. Andy is Vitality's head coach. He works with organisations across the UK and advises them on how they can make their workforces healthier, happier and more productive. James Belsham. James is a key member of the Britain's Healthiest Workplace research team. Britain's Healthiest Workplace is the largest and most comprehensive workplace wellness survey in the UK. And I'm delighted to welcome Fiona Murden. Fiona is a psychologist, best-selling author, entrepreneur and speaker. So Fiona, I'd like to start with you. And the cost to the UK economy due to poor mental health is staggering. What do you think are some of the factors driving this? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think we're all aware that mental health is becoming uh, more of a priority. So, that, so one of the key things I think is technology is driving it. So what technology is doing is it's creating more individualism in, in the way people operate. There's also the breakdown of community. So as we break down community, we just don't operate in a way that uh, actually our brains are, are made to or evolved to, which is communicating with one another, helping one another, asking for guidance and assistance, and also people being able to read when, when something's gone wrong for you and stepping in. When you're not in a community and you're isolated from other people, or you don't give other people that permission because of the way we live now, people aren't as likely to step in and help. Um, I think, you know, there's decline in religion. So I'm not saying that you have to be religious, but the thing about religion is that it provides people with a sense of meaning and purpose. And without religion, people very much scramble around to try and find that meaning and purpose. And there's a lot of research that shows that absolutely vital uh, for good mental health. So uh, Holocaust survivor, uh, Viktor Frankl, for example, uh, did, he was a psychiatrist and neurologist as well, and did a lot of research on that because he was in the, the, the concentration camps and seeing that the people that were surviving were the people that had more sense of purpose and meaning. So following that, he did a lot of research on it, and since then, a lot more research has been done to prove that it's actually underpinned a lot of mental health. So that's interesting, so about, around faith then, I guess, mm. having faith in something. It's having faith, I think it's also having, so I like using David Attenborough as an example. Yeah. There's someone that really knows why they're here, what they're doing. Mm. And, and actually trying to find that meaning and purpose in itself can be stressful and mm. can cause you to go down um, a bad path with mental health, ironically. But if you've got that framework, it allows you to keep going even when things are bad. It's like a light at the end of the tunnel, basically. Yeah. James, I mean, I, I think in British Health's workplace, it talks... I mean, some of the some of the things that Fiona has spoken about communication, structure, frameworks, that's kind of comes out in Britain's health workplace as well, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you talked about sort of purpose as part of it, sort of key factor in good mental health. Because when we when we look at the sort of the sources of stress for employees, uh, we actually see that the lack of clarity over your role uh, and the lack of autonomy over your role is, is a key thing that employees cite as problems they're facing, and that really comes down to sort of their perceptions of the company they're working for and in terms of how they're managed. So is their line manager instilling that sense of purpose in them? Are they giving them autonomy over the tasks they're doing? So that's interesting as well, because when I did my 
uh, masters, we, we did a lot around autonomy and sense of autonomy and how people, for example, in call centres can often be have the worst mental health because they don't feel they have control over their role. And actually that comes down to a basic human needs as well, is we need to feel the clarity over why we're here and what we're doing. Mm. Okay. And uh, Andy, I mean, I guess kind of you're going into workplaces all the time, kind of seeing all this firsthand. I mean, is there, are there any kind of solutions, tips, or I mean, or any kind of, you know, any, any learnings that you can get from that, that uh, to try and solve this? Definitely, Dan, and I think having uh, <clears throat> whatever solutions that you do put in place, I think ultimately it has to be aligned with your company culture, and it has to be aligned with your company values and purpose, I think, as well, because it's all encompassing, isn't it? From a proactive point of view, I think employers need to be communicating with their employees around what they can do on a day-to-day -day basis to manage their, their mental well-being. So that could be things such as, you know, um, and again, you sort of have to have different solutions based upon sort of the, your range of employees, but it could be down to simple things such as time management, or it could be down to managing your finances on a day-to-day -day basis, or it could be um, you know, sort of advice on, <clears throat> on meditation and what you can do on a daily basis to actually overall positively impact your health and well-being, and especially your mental well-being. Again, doing this via email communication, posters, word of mouth, even podcasts as well, and just making that communication and that information available for employees to engage with as and when they need. The key thing as well to have in place and to make sure that you're proactively communicating about is making sure that employees know what they've got access to. So should they actually be experiencing a period of mental ill health or do you need to seek support, that everyone is clear, or at least that line managers are clear where they can point their teams to, and so that they've got that reactive support as well for those employees that do need it at the, do need it at the time. Again, I think it's all encompassing and it's all pretty much wrapped up. But what actually enables these two, all of these to happen, are two key things. The first thing is senior leadership buy-in. So it needs to be discussed at board level, and companies need to understand what the average employee is experiencing on a day-to-day -day basis. But then, secondly, having champions in the workplace. So these are, you know, from the bottom up, the employees that are present on a day-to-day -day basis that are able to maybe spot the signs and symptoms of mental ill health and perhaps if they're formally trained, signpost their colleagues and employees in certain ways. But again, kind of comes back to your sense of community, also allowing um, employees to have friends to, in the workplace, to socialise in the workplace and to have that network to, to support you on a day-to-day -day basis is really important also. So uh, Fiona, I think it's um, obviously kind of everyone has individual tipping points. I mean, you know, it's kind of been, been seen that, you know, obviously some of the best performers uh, um, are kind of ones that maybe um, don't admit when they're um, suffering from kind of, you know, mental health issues. I mean, is there anything you could say about that at all? Well, it's interesting because there's a, there's a curve which was actually used for cardiac uh, cardiac by cardiac surgeons initially, and it looks at your pressure points, and we all have an optimal pressure point, so we need a certain amount of stress to perform. So stress is actually vital. But the stress of those peak performers might be um, something that the rest of us go, <gasps> you know. <laughs> you, it's like when, when people describe their day and they've flown from this place to this place and done this, that, and other, and you think, oh my goodness, I just want to go back to bed now if I'm yeah. that. Um, so their pressure point might be much, much higher, but it doesn't stop them from having a tipping point. And, and they often don't recognise that because they sort of feel like they're invincible and look at me, so you take surgeons for example you take consultants at companies like McKinsey um, people that are really peak performers in their field and same with sports people 
And then when they tip over the edge, they can't get their head around it. So it can often be those people that have the worst uh, outcome in terms of their depression. They'll hit the lowest depression or that if they've got a mental healthness, weak health weakness in any way, like whatever that might be, schizophrenia, or it will hit them a lot harder yeah. because they get they get their may plummet down. Whereas the rest of us <laughs> might sort of toddle along, and when we start feeling that stress, we think, oh. I don't mm. like this. This doesn't feel quite so nice, and we step away from it. Right. Um, but it's there's there's a concentric circles. That's a nice analogy, where you use it for sport. You have the comfort zone in the middle, the stretch zone, and the panic zone. And if you're an athlete, you have to go into your stretch zone to be able to reach your peak performance, mm. and occasionally into your panic zone. Mm. But if you spend too long in your panic zone you break something, you snap a ligament, you, you sprain, you pull, whatever. And it's the same with the mental health and that's different for everyone. So it's knowing what is my comfort zone, what is my stretch zone if I want to be at peak performance, and what is my panic zone. And when you go into your panic zone, you need to get back into your stretch zone or your comfort zone, otherwise you're gonna get ill. Are there any techniques for people to try and kind of work out what those different zones are? It's really, it really comes down to self-awareness and personal development. And it's self-reflection, which I think can be framed incorrectly as introspection, which can cause depression mm. or lead to, not cause. It's observation of self. So it's literally things like uh, tracking apps, um, you know, Apple Watches might be, or it, you can have a notepad and you can note down in the day, when do I feel really horrible and why? What is that? What are the, how much sleep did I have last mm. night? And you actually sort of, it's almost like a journal of you. So how do I respond personally to different situations? What makes me feel good? What makes me feel down? What makes me feel stressed? So it's really sort of learning about yourself is what I would say would be the most helpful thing. And, and so, I mean, in terms of what the proof points, I mean, I imagine there's people listening here thinking, you know, what we, why should we as an employer be responsible for the mental health of our employees. Um, you know, why is it kind of, you know, why is it important for them to do that? And also, I mean, how difficult is it for them to kind of put these processes in place to to help their employees in this way? I mean, you know, you can see from review, from the government review, that it's mental ill health is is causing a lot of, you know, kind of is impacting the economy negatively. But how can we actually say prove to the employers say that actually this is going to help your employee productivity and this is how you do it? I mean, I'm certainly happy to, from from my point of view, James would definitely be able to elaborate on sort of the hard hard evidence for this. But the difficult conversation that we have with employers is that it is obviously it's an upfront investment, which um, is is always tricky to negotiate, especially if you're in an HR team or you're trying to get funding for your health and well-being initiatives or programs and trying to introduce everything. Essentially, you're saying, can we set aside this funding or time or resource now? and we'll get the payback in terms of productivity or retention of employees later on. And that's a really, really tricky um, tricky argument to have without sort of solid evidence. And I suppose that's really where Britain Celtic's workplace comes in in terms of highlighting the opportunities that may exist with that. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I think there are, there are a couple of key insights that have come out of Britain Celtic's workplace research, which we've done with employers over the last few years. Um, and the first key thing is that mental health issues are highly prevalent in the workplace and highly linked to events that are happening in an employee's workplace. 
so we see that over half of employees are identifying with sort of at least one form of work-related stress. Um, around a third of employees aren't getting enough sleep. Um, and then around 10% of employees have sort of serious financial concerns in their personal lives. Um, and we see around 5 or 6% of employees suffering from depression. And the, the key thing is when you put all of those together, you actually find that around 9 in 10 people, that people have at least one of these concerns going on in their lives. So for an, for an employer, you're, you're, by introducing a mental health program or an initiative to deal with it, you're able to cater for a huge number of your employees. Um, and in terms of the, this, this case around sort of the business case for investing in mental health, uh, part of what we do to bring this up as workplace is track productivity loss, uh, which is linked to the health of employees. Um, and what we found is that the health of employees is sort of irrevocably linked um, to their physical and mental health. Um, and that comes in the form of absence and presenteeism. Uh, so I think one of the key things around mental health particularly um, is it's not necessarily perceived as as much of a problem as a physical health issue because people may be at their desks mm. uh, and they're giving the, giving the impression that they're yeah. working effectively. Um, but actually, as, as I think we all know, that m mental health issues can have a significant impact on your performance while you're at work. Yeah, and I would say from a psychological perspective, so a, a lot of the work I do is on the peak performance side in leaders, but a lot of that is also underpinning their mental health. And it might not be labelled as that, but it's making sure they're sleeping properly. It's making sure they're not making key decisions on jet lag. It's making sure they're spending time with their family and they're having breaks. And that will come as part of executive coaching to say, have you got your strategic vision in place? Are you driving the bottom line results? And it's the same with all employees. It's we can say, if we improve an employee's, I would say from a psychological perspective, self-awareness, and we give them the tools for personal development and psychological tools, they will perform better because they'll understand where their weak spots are, where they need to get support in the workplace in terms of being a better performer, but they're also less likely to be mentally ill. Correct. I mean, I guess kind of, you know, um, James has given kind of, you know, quite a few um, quite scary statistics there yeah. in terms of how, um, how mental health is kind of impacting um, employees, but I mean, are there any particular groups that are at risk, or is there kind of you know, if for an employer listening here today, going okay, well, you know, if I'm going to start with with one group, who should I start with to try and make you know make their mental health better? Uh, so I mean, I think from from the data at a very high level, we would say that younger and lower, more lower earning employees are the most at risk um, for issues such as depression, sort of financial concerns. Um, what's perhaps slightly surprising is that these employees are also the most at risk for work-related stress. Um, I think you may naturally assume that your more senior, more higher earning employees are the ones who are under the most pressure uh, in their day-to-day -day roles. Um, but what we're actually seeing is that it's more junior employees who are suffering from a number of stresses, um, which are primarily driven by the way that they're managed. Um, so as I, said, as I said just earlier in the podcast around sort of a lack of autonomy over what you're doing, a lack of control over the tasks that you're doing, uh, your manager not giving you clarity over the role that you're performing within the organisation. And I think there's quite an interesting circularity in that managers say that they're under time pressure, which means that they lack the time to manage their reporting employees effectively. Yeah, squeeze middle. Yeah, yeah. precisely. Yeah. I mean, uh, Fiona, I mean, you know, have you got any kind of more insight into possibly why these younger people are, uh, are kind of uh, suffering particularly badly? I think there's probably more statistics around now, so I yeah. think to the extent we could say, well, I'm. You know, I could say a long time ago when I was a younger employee, 
for the same reasons, lack of autonomy, you just do have that when you're a younger employee. But I think when it comes to low earners, then they have all the financial concerns attached with that, as well as the fact that they are most likely to have a lack of autonomy. So it all comes back to that. But I think the younger generation, the individualism that we talked about right at the beginning, is an issue here because they're attached to their phones the whole time. We know that. We've got statistics around that. In some ways, that can be positive because it can be like you reach out, you meet new friends. But in a lot of ways, particularly when it's something like Instagram, which is popular now, there's the comparison that actually wears away at mental health. Um, and then there's the fact that it's very high level. So you're not having a deep and meaningful connection with people. So it might even be your best friend on Instagram that you're touching in with, but you've not got that connection of sitting down face to face, eye to eye, which is actually as human beings what we need. And I think the other thing is the technology in the world around us is driving us far further and further away from how our brain has actually evolved mm -hmm. to operate. So things like sleep, we have artificial light. I mean, we can't change that. That's the way the environment's set up. But it means that we have all these factors in our environment that are just pressing us more and more and more. And so it's saying, well, we can't change our environment, but how can we mitigate the impact of those on, on who we are? And attention as well, reducing the attention span as well. There's been findings around that. Yeah. You know, so, you know, there's a lot of things. Although technology is an amazing enabler in lots of ways, it's also obviously having detrimental effects. And it taps into the emotional, the limbic system of the brain rather than, you know, when everyone talks about dopamine release, they're roughly talking about limbic system, rather than that, the most evolved part of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex, and the, the more advanced brain, which is rational thinking, it's meaning, it's purpose. And that's the bit that manages our emotions from the other bit of our brain. And if that's not developed because we're on our phone the whole time, then it makes it more difficult to manage, which is where meditation is brilliant because it's helping nurture those brain connections that enable someone to be able to manage their emotions more effectively. But all these things come into play, and the, the worst thing about it is this more advanced part of our brain is slower. And so with the fast world around us, we're responding constantly you know, with the emotional part of our brain rather than the advanced part of our brain, which doesn't leave us much scope for... Um, being able to, to manage ourselves, manage our emotions, manage who we are as people and find that sense of purpose. In a, in a, sort of a, in a workplace example of that sort of dopamine release, you could compare it to opening your emails. Mm -hmm. For example, you're, tick, you're ticking off minor tasks by opening your emails, whereas you're not able to focus on sort of more comprehensive work that's actually going to make a difference mm -hmm. to, in your role. Mm. It's just taking so attention work, away, isn't it? Workplace is almost mirroring that sort of social media. Absolutely. Yeah, you've got to give yourself an hour to work on this, and then in the, you know, in the corner of your eye, seeing all the kind of emails flashing up, you know, I've got to answer yeah, these, absolutely. take you away from the, the work you should be doing. There was a project I was on years ago, I used to be a consultant at Accenture, and um, there was a project we were on where we were told, you have to stop using email. You can only talk to people face to face, and if that fails, you go to the phone, you do not use your email. And it had a fundamental shift in the way yeah. we were behaving. Did it last as well? It did last because it was became sort of this project. It was a long-term project and it yeah. became a project sort of uh, way of working. Um, it's, it's quite a good discipline. Something else that workplaces can do, actually, yeah. say, yeah. first of all, try and see someone face-to-face. -face. If that fails, go to the phone. If that fails, then send an email. Is it, I mean, it is, there's so many things to take your attention away now, aren't there? Mm -hmm. You know, you're kind of working, working away, you've got your phone with text coming up, WhatsApp messages, you've got your emails, you've got kind of loads of other things. It's, it's, it's so difficult. 
Um, I mean, Andy, you know, we, we've spoken a little bit, obviously, around kind of creating the structures and um, and you've spoken about kind of management buy-in. Um, but it seems to be that line managers especially seem to have a real, uh, really, really important part to play in kind of helping the mental health of their team and helping kind of, you know, provide that kind of happiness, I guess, there within the team structure. Is there anything, you, any advice you can give around that? Or? No, definitely. And I think line managers probably have a bit more of a challenge on their plates because they are, as you know, to, to use your term, Dan, they are sort of in the middle and they are probably having to now in sort of the evolving workplace, having to manage different generations of employees as well, mm. who each in themselves have different demands. So I think it's becoming ever more complex, but at the same time, it can be really simple if you bring it back to the, um, to the simple principles in terms of actually get, gaining insight and understanding how to work with that. So that's where, again, sort of, for example, mental health first aid training for line managers is that would be a really useful tool to implement in the workplace. And the reason for that being is the fact that line managers ultimately are working um, on a day-to-day -day basis with their teams. It's important for them to pick up the signs and symptoms of if things aren't right, and then to be able to step in, to be able to signpost employees in the right direction, be it from a just buying somebody a cup of coffee and giving them a bit of time to discuss, or alternatively, actually pointing them towards formal, formal sort of um, support that they may need. Again, they can also act as a, I suppose, act as a representative for living by the sort of the, the, the and role mm -hmm. modeling the behaviors. It's really, really important for them to to actually, you know, for any leader in any business. And I, I would argue the case that regardless if you're managing a team or not, you're still a leader and you're still able to model those behaviors. Um, it's I, really important for them to sort of to walk the walk and talk the talk. And I, I would say just from the perspective of where I sit and sort of helping organizations understand how to get things done is line managers need more training just to mm. be line managers, yeah. not in mental health. I mean, yes, they do need it in mental health, but if a line manager is going to have the time to be able to sit down with each of their reports, they need training on how to be a manager. And there's a huge, uh, it's another statistic, it's a huge gap in terms of middle management training and understanding yeah. of how to be a manager, which means that they get the work piled on them they get more stressed, they don't have time. It's this circular point that you came up you came to earlier, Dan. And it's this it's it give them the tools, the basic tools of just how to be good managers. Mm. Then say, right, spend more time with your team. Yeah. because oh, they're still delivering, aren't they? They're still delivering a lot of the work. So I mean I imagine um, you know, if you're kind of getting getting they're getting their boss telling them to do something, they they need to get that work done, you know, the actual line management duties come sometimes come last you know and they don't know how to be line managers they haven't no one's taught them how to delegate how to manage their time differently how to step mm. away from detailed tasks mm. so that they need help yeah exactly because a lot of line managers are ultimately in that position because they've been technical experts themselves exactly. for a number of years and because you're a technical expert and experienced and very promoted. knowledgeable it doesn't mean that you're the right part you it doesn't mean that you're necessarily well equipped or mm. well enough to be able to then empower others, delegate, lead oh, a step team. away sometimes, I imagine. <coughs> Absolutely. So, uh, if you've been doing that work for, for years. Yeah. And, then, yeah. and that in itself can be probably very, very stressful because you feel like you're not doing a good job. Previously, you were delivering in one certain area, whereas now you have to help others, lead very others, true. inspire. And it's, it's actually, it's a very challenging task because it requires just a totally different skill set. And uh, Fiona, I've seen your, your 
blog post mental health by the day, mm. you know, kind of talks a lot about kind of resilience. So for someone who's who's maybe um, you know kind of having some some issues in the workplace, is there any kind of tips that you can give to them to to kind of build that resilience to kind of overcome um, the way they the way they're feeling? Yeah, I think I mean the thing that I've learned with resilience through just reading up a lot of the research myself is some people are naturally more resilient than others by personality type. But there are factors that we can all do to make ourselves more resilient. Some of the things we've talked about. But it's, firstly, the most simple thing is social connection. So it's when you feel rubbish, don't shut yourself away. Go and talk to someone. Go for a drink with someone. Go for coffee with someone. There are things, there are basic psychological tools, which I imagine that you offer as well. Um, it's around cognitive reframing. So it's helping someone understand how to reframe their thinking. So for example, I failed this exam, therefore I'm stupid. That's sort of out of your control, so it comes back to that point of not having control, um, and it's a fatalistic outcome. You can reframe that from the psychological perspective, say I failed this exam because I didn't work hard enough. From that I have the lesson, but next time I will work harder. Now, it's easier said than done, but you can teach people these skills because suddenly that's a something you're in control of and the outcome is positive. And, and you can teach people those skills. But at a very basic level, there's research that say that we have a three-to-one ratio. If we have three good things happen, three sort of positive experiences in a day, one negative, it keeps us resilient. Right. So when that starts tipping, things start going wrong. So it's ensuring that you fill your time as much with the positive, you take, you step away from toxic people, toxic yeah. environments, and you take control where you can, but I think that's a lot about, learn as much as you can about yourself, what your tipping points are, um, look for help, ask for help, um, and and just fill your, fill your day up with as many positives as you can. But I think that's a really good place to end this, actually. I think there's uh, some, some excellent points there, some excellent tips for people to take. Um, thanks to our panellists, and, and thank you all to those who are listening today. Um, I hope you found it both interesting and enjoyable.